0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Research in Focus podcast hosted at the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University. My name is Josh Coward, and I will be your host today. We will be speaking with David Zanfleet and Shannon Letty, co-chairs of the Institute for Environmental Learning. This is a special year because this year marks the 10th anniversary of the Institute, coinciding with the Faculty of Education's 50th year anniversary of environmental education. Hello, Shannon and David. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, David, I was hoping that you could please introduce yourself briefly.
1: Well, I'm a professor in the Faculty of Education, and um, I'm sort of holder of the newly established UNESCO Chair at SFU in Biocultural Diversity and Education. And I'm a co-director of the Institute for Environmental Learning. So I have many hats, uh, but mainly... I'm teaching in the environmental education programs at SFU and collaborating with
0: community partners. You recently received a UNESCO chair in biocultural diversity. Can you talk about this a little bit, please?
1: Well, the designation is new, and I guess that's kind of uh, my 15 minutes of fame at SFU because I'm the, the only UNESCO chair currently, although there may be future UNESCO chairs. Uh, There's a network of about 28 of these uh, through various disciplines in Canada. And mine was proposed as biocultural diversity in education, which is really looking at the intersection of biodiversity and cultural diversity and how those two uh, ideas are related to each other and what opportunities that affords for education. It's not really a new idea for me because I've been working in different cultural settings for most of my career, but in a way it's kind of a rebranding of my work and a slightly different trajectory for the future.
0: When looking at the intersection between biodiversity and cultural diversity, can you talk about how these are related to each other and what opportunities that these afford for education?
2: The new term, and actually the name given to my UNESCO chair, is biocultural diversity in education. And, you know, for the last 20 years, there's been a lot of research done on linking biodiversity, biological diversity, with cultural diversity. And if you looked at a map of the world, you would see that, um, where there is the greatest biodiversity in the planet, like places like Indonesia and the Amazon, are also linguistically and culturally the most diverse places on the planet. So UNESCO and another a number of different organizations are kind of latching onto this term, biocultural diversity. And in a nutshell, um, the way I'm looking at it is, um, related to sustainable development goals, looking at cultures around the world and what they afford us in terms of how to live sustainably in the future. So for example, a local example would be uh, partnering with the Squamish nation and then uh, trying to learn more about their culture and learn about how they live sustainably on the land. And that giving us sort of lessons for the future for sustainability with our Western culture. So looking at diverse Indigenous cultures around the world as a source of knowledge for sustainability, for example.
0: You also mentioned this is a rebranding of your work, putting it in a different trajectory. Can you talk about this a bit, please?
2: Well, I have been working in Indigenous communities around the world for probably the last 20 years, and some examples of that are my Indonesia field school and my Haida Gwaii field school. So using the term biocultural diversity, it's kind of extending the work that I was doing, but it's linking it more closely to the Sustainable Development Goals and looking at possibly language included. So the, traje- the trajectory in the future will also be looking at culture, but possibly language, and what kind of other knowledge is encoded in Indigenous languages around the world.
0: What's the importance of language?
2: So language is sometimes considered a proxy for culture, right? So um, those two are very tightly connected, but with a lot of languages Uh, threatened around the world we can't always go to the language to get the cultural knowledge and so working with indigenous communities um, looking at their cultural practices and their ways of living on the land that's kind of the focus of biocultural diversity.
0: What are some examples of things you're doing in the community?
1: Well um, there's two projects I'm engaged with right now which both involve um, education 452. I have one version that has been taught in the lower mainland for many years and we're kind of rejigging that one in a partnership with Katsum uh, How Sound Biosphere region initiative. There's a collaboration of partners in How Sound um, and they are just about to get UNESCO Biosphere region status. And so when I was going forward with my proposal to UNESCO, they put us together. And what was very interesting is I knew most of the people already and I wasn't aware that was going forward. So the course starting this summer, uh, the Vancouver course will have a focus on how sound and kind of a, uh, basically a river to ocean kind of format. We're calling it learning like a river. Um, And I'll be co-teaching it with Victor Elderton, uh, who's the former principal of uh, North Vancouver Outdoor School, Chiakama Centre. And uh, Bowen Island, my old stomping ground, will be one of the field experiences as part of that course. So I'm quite excited about that and waiting to see what will be possible with COVID and all of that. But we have tentative approval to have some field experiences in five or six locations in
0: Howe Sound. How do you analyze and evaluate your work?
1: Well, I think this course has always, you know, from Milt's days, and he mentored me well here, I think, it's been a catalyst for community collaboration. You know, I'm very proud that the course, we don't set foot on a university campus during the course. And what seems to happen is the student audience ends up being a catalyst for all kinds of community players to get together. Um, and they start having conversations with each other in front of the students, which often lead to sort of new connections and new projects. So, for example, with the Akat Somehow Sound project, I know that there hasn't been a really strong dialogue between the Squamish First Nation and the other partners. And I'm hoping that that's a conversation that we'll be able to stimulate and facilitate a little bit. And I've been already having meetings with representatives from Squamish Nation and uh, hoping that that collaboration will lead to sort of a richer um, initiative for the UNESCO uh, designation there.
0: You've previously mentioned to me the importance of the partnership you have with your colleagues in Indonesia.
1: Yeah, so part of the designation requires you uh, as the chairholder to have a north south relationship and sort of working on uh, developing sort of a dialogue between the developing and developed world, as it were, um, is an important part of what UNESCO wants to see happen with the research program. So for me, we have a really long standing relationship uh, through the Indonesia Field School that I've run many times with uh, Universitas Sam Ratulangi in Indonesia. And my co-chair is Dr. Waska Ratansulu. She's actually in the Faculty of Agriculture, but she does a lot of informal education with the agricultural sector and working in the islands and, and that around Siau and Sulawesi in Indonesia. So this is the context for our field school, but there's a lot of faculty development work that I do when I go down there. There's always like events put on when we're collaborating on a field school and their faculty come and give lectures to our students. And then we go in, Weska and I, and do lots of professional development with faculty there. And incidentally the most of the faculty there were actually trained through uh, CETA Canadian international development agency funded project that SFU coordinated for over 10 years. Um, So, SFU's roots in Indonesia like, go back quite a ways uh, to the days of Chris Dagg and Nello Angiorelli. So, um, so I'm very excited about that. And um, I think we'll be offering that field school more uh, routinely in the future. And I think it will develop into quite an interesting research agenda uh, for the future.
0: The last project you and I worked together on was when I was at the Vancouver Botanical Gardens Association. This project received a UNESCO award for growing communities. Can you please talk about this?
1: So the designation that was, it was an award from UN University, the RCE um, network there. Um, And basically it was acknowledged as a flagship project because I guess the innovation in that was really like a nonprofit society partnering with a university research institute that has so many partners to create mentorship opportunities for graduate students. So, and the other part of that is that the research agenda, we're using a kind of an action research methodology, which means we're not coming there with our questions. We're trying to like, tease those out of the education staff there to get them thinking more like a researcher in the way they design and test and evaluate their programs. So um, we've just finished the first year of that and we're just in the process of appointing three new fellows, one from SFU, no two from SFU and one from UBC and they've all just accepted the fellowships so we'll be having sort of the beginning of year two happening uh, probably in the next few
0: weeks. So how do you make educators act more like researchers?
2: Well, one of the strategies I've used is called action research. And in particular, it's kind of a participatory action research. So what that means is, you know, when I go into a site like, let's say, it's the Van Dusen Gardens, or maybe it's Ocean Wise and working with the Vancouver Aquarium, Rather than me as the researcher having all my questions um, set and kind of telling them what I want to look at, there's a power kind of hierarchy there. If I do that, we flatten that. And I kind of go in and I try to involve the educators and other people at that site, let's say uh, Van Dusen Gardens, with what are their questions about the program. And we together we co-design the research questions based on the interest of that particular organization, so it's more of a mentorship and coaching model rather than me kind of coming in with the font of all knowledge kind of approach. It takes a little bit longer, um, but I find that people buy into the process, and and then I become more of a resource person, and the actual organization is driving the research agenda, which is really classic action research. Um, Also works with teachers, where the teacher ends up being the researcher rather than, you know, the researcher per se coming from the
0: university. So how did the two fellows do?
2: Well, the concept went really well, and um, they did some very interesting research around a program called Dirt to Dinner, and it kind of evolved. They began observing it and asking questions of the educators about what they were doing. And eventually, um, everyone decided we should interview the parents after the program. And that was really interesting insight as well. survey was developed. And we're kind of continuing this year with uh, actually there's three fellows, uh, although they're all women. So that's a funny term. They're research fellows, but they're women. Um, Anyway, we're we're continuing with that. And, uh, you know, the the spring break programs that are happening actually this week, they'll be going in and observing and see what kind of questions arise out of that.
0: What a great project and what a great experience for the fellows. Great work. I'd now like to introduce you to Shannon Letty. Professor with the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy at UBC and Co-Chair of the IEL. Shannon, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself, please?
3: Sure. Tansei, uh, my name is Dr. Shannon Letty. I am on my mother's side, second generation Irish-Canadian, and on my father's side, I'm a member of the Métis Nation um, with ties to both St. Louis, Saskatchewan, and to the Red River Valley. Um, I am an Assistant Professor of Teaching at the University of British Columbia in the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy, and my specific teaching focus at the Ad institution is in um, Indigenous education, uh, but I am also very much uh, interested in work within arts education and now environmental education. I'm sort of the new kid on the block in relation to all these folks. I only met everyone around 2010, um, and they actually showed me the ways in which I am an environmental and sustainability educator because I initially didn't believe them, but it turns out it's true.
0: Earlier, David and I were talking about language and culture, and I'm wondering if you are incorporating language into your teachings.
3: I, I am. I'm a Cree language learner. I am really excited to. I, I'm not taking Cree classes this term because I was teaching three classes myself, and honestly, there's only so much a person can do. Um, but it is quite astonishing, as um, I, you know, I grew up here in Cree, spoken around other other folks uh, in my school, in my neighborhood, in my community. But it wasn't a language that I had myself, other than the key parenting words like "astam" come here and "awas" go away. Um, so, but as I'm acquiring the language, I'm beginning to make connections between the way concepts have developed in relation to other concepts. So, you see all of these compound words. One example um, is that the word for earth is aski, and the word for a year has the root aski in it. So, we can see a direct relationship between an understanding of time that is intimately tied to the land and only recognizable that way. So yes, the resurgence, the revitalization, the preservation of indigenous languages is so important to continuing to uh, be able to offer our young people the ideas that we carry with us that are perhaps not available in English.
0: Recently, the IEL hosted an event about indigenization. Shannon, can you please discuss with us decolonization and indigenization?
3: I should start by saying there are many uh, for whom it is important not to take decolonization as a metaphor. Specifically, Tuck and Yang wrote an article a number of years ago in which they actually argue for the repatriation of land um, to indigenous peoples across the continent. Um, in, In my personal work, I am not thusly empowered so I have to work around decolonization as best I can. I, I But I still try not to make it a metaphor. Rather, I describe it as the, the, the peeling back of the colonial layers that were added onto us by years and years of curriculum that focused on white heteronormativity, that focused on uh, Eurocentric value systems and use for assessment, that focused on the exclusion and erasure of indigenous voices particularly contemporary Indigenous voices, um, by locating most of what was discussed about Indigenous people in some kind of ethnographic past. So decolonizing means sort of working through all of that and understanding how those layers informed our relationships to, or lack of relationships to, Indigenous people and living on colonized land. So in the In indigenization of education, what we're then talking about is once those layers are peeled back, there's now space to include indigenous voices in curriculum, to include indigenous worldview as as an equally important ontology or a set of equally important ontologies, depending on which indigenous community you're talking about, um, that are equal to Western ontology, um, and to ensure that we're using resources that are developed by Indigenous people and using Indigenous pedagogies, ways of approaching curriculum that are going to not only help improve outcomes, learning outcomes for Indigenous students, but will raise all students up largely through their focus on holistic approaches to both students and subject matter, which is also intercurricular.
0: So I'm curious, can these two activities take place concurrently or does one have to take place before the other?
3: You know, we all stand at different places in our relationship to uh, Indigenous education. So I think for some folks, if that decolonizing process has already begun, um, then the indigenization can be simultaneous. But it really, uh, in my opinion, The work of decolonizing, of understanding how curriculum has informed us about Indigenous people must precede indigenization because otherwise we can run into uh, problems around misappropriation, misunderstanding, failure to acknowledge local protocol, and the onset of bad relations. So I think to do things in a good way, we really have to start with that decolonizing piece.
0: What would you like to accomplish as co-chair of the IEL?
3: Well, first of all, I just want to say, you know, in recognition of the folks that have spoken so far, I want to acknowledge that I'm really standing on the shoulders of these guys who did all the work to ensure that the IEL exists as an RCE, so I really feel like I walked in at a great time because that hard part was done, so now I just get to you know, continue on. Um, but one of the things that I really want to focus on in my work with this organization is the inc- re-inclusion of Indigenous voices and uh, knowledges and ways of thinking about the world into the discourse of environmental education, because I think for a number of years um, it's been dominated by non Indigenous voices. And that's been really important because we all need to learn together and we yeah. all have something to offer. But definitely, Indigenous approaches to land based learning and understanding knowledge. As rooted in the land is something that has been kind of missing. I think many of many of the ways we've talked about land in environmental education historically have still tended to view land as a resource, um, and land as a you know site of recreation, and land as something that belongs to us. Whereas Indigenous voices offer us the perspective that we belong to the land. And so our stewardship needs to not focus as much on how we can make use of the land, but rather how is the land and how are we with the land and are we all well together?
0: How are current times affecting decolonization and the work that you're doing?
3: This particular era in history feels like a particularly violent flux. One in which concepts such as free speech, which were well applied in the context where only the people around you could hear you, or it might, your word might go further if you could write it down and the person receiving it could read it. The climate of social media and all of these social spaces where anonymity is possible has made all of this so much harder. And I think, you know, the, the we are only just now getting a sense of how deep, the wound is. So I think that healing is going to take as long as it takes. What is imperative is that the work doesn't stop.
0: That's very powerful, Shannon. David, I'm wondering if you have anything you want to say regarding this.
1: There's a lot of communities and uh, perspectives that are missing from the environmental education discourse still. And I mean the most glaring one as Shannon has pointed out is is the indigenous voices. Um and you know even myself having you know worked in communities like Haidegwai and in the indigenous communities in Indonesia it's a very uh tough conversation to have because you know people have been hurt especially especially urban communities of of indigenous people like um this project that i'm trying to do in in squamish uh it's uh it's a very long time coming and i think in part uh the work that i did with carlos and Shannon to some extent in haida Gwaii was necessary to happen before this happened in vancouver um and they're actually, you know, they're here, oh, you've been working in Haida Gwaii for 16 years. You can work with those people? Oh, well, we might we might be able to work with you then. And that's sort of what the conversation has been like. So being, I guess, at the right place at the right time is part of it. But it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a long conversation. And when I started this conversation, with the squamous nation i said well i'm looking at a 10-year horizon for us to work together like this isn't a a one-off this is going to be a long-term relationship so it's just starting um i have to listen a lot um so that's an important first conversation but there are lots of other voices that are are not heard in the community i always like uh, one of the first times I read David Orr, you know, the it's a philosopher, and he wrote, he, he's he got a series of essays, or Earth in Mind, and one of the essays that to this day, the first time I read it, it just rocked my world in terms of like my own misconceptions about, because I thought, I'm a teacher, I care about the environment I want to become an environmental educator and, you know, share the word, share the word and teach everyone. And um, there's a quote in there that he said, you know, uh, environmental education is not a problem for education. It's a problem with education in the same way. uh, I think that indigenous education decolonizing was a problem. know that we needed to address and and his evidence for that is it's the most educated people in society that do the most environmental damage right when you when you've got a phd or an llb or an mba now you can really fuck with the environment (laughs) excuse my friends here but um so i thought wow um you know it's the business people it's the lawyers they need environmental education because they like, they don't get it. And we're talking to the, you know, we're like preaching to the choir uh, with our little um, green groups when we meet in the forest or even when we meet and we talk about sustainability in the city and green farming and, you know, guerrilla gardening in the urban core in LA or whatever's going on. But we're still, We're speaking to the choir. Uh, Who are those people that we're not talking to that don't get it? And I I understand why that's been left for last, because that's going to be the hardest conversation, right? That's where um, it's going to take a lot of work to, like, educate the business community, educate the legal community uh, to understand why environmentalism and sustainability is important because you know they don't get it yet.
3: One of the things I, that I would add in terms of who is missing, given especially that we're recording this during Black History Month, um, there are there's a massive BIPOC population in Canada that has arrived here directly as a result of colonization um, from a variety of places around the world and whose massive contributions to building the railroad and other infrastructures that have become Canada. I find those folks to be missing from the discourse as well, and I think that's another voice that we need to include. Uh, we've also heard from folks who talk about more recent immigrant populations. So how do we bring folks and their learning from the lands that they're from to bear in the conversations on these new lands that they are now going to be situated in? So I that that's... Um, I think that work of bringing more voices in is really fundamental. I just wanted to throw in my two cents. Um, But David, you mentioned uh, that, you know, it's often the wealthiest and the most well-educated people who are the worst with um, environmental uh, preservation and thinking uh, about sustainability in their day-to-day lives. So this pandemic has made it very clear to us that we academics are rather spoiled in the amount of travel that we get to do and even are expected to do in relation to our jobs and the way that we're evaluated for merit and tenure and that sort of thing. So we now know that we can do all of this By Zoom. It's maybe not the best thing in the world. I really get tired of seeing people in little squares, but I'm getting a lot of crocheting done. Um, But how do you see us going forward with this? Like, are we all going to go back to I go to five conferences a year and I zip all around the globe? And I do think it's important for us to be in other places. I do think that that is valuable and that it brings us outside of ourselves and creates learning opportunities we don't otherwise have. But how do we balance that with the cost to the environment? We know that we can do conferencing via Zoom. Are we going to return to travel? And what is the what is the ethical uh, nature of our obligation vis-a-vis sustainability in that regard?
1: Right, right. I,
3: I big worded it up there.
1: Yeah. So I think part of that from, from the academic perspective is there's a bit of gamesmanship in attending all these conferences and in a way that networking with the academic community and you know publishing papers and so on in those kind of communities is is the game to get promoted and succeed in academia. And so uh, when we're not certain of our positions we're kind of forced to play that game. hopefully the rules of that game might change a little bit in the future in that online conferences and so on um, become, you know, as prestigious and as important because really in a way you can have a better interaction with colleagues when there aren't so many people around, or you can have a nice smaller breakout session in an online. So I, I think um, I have hope that, That we might be traveling less in the future but i do think we still will need to travel but we'll have to be much more strategic about it so like so for example if i'm going to go to indonesia you know and that's a big uh, you know ecological footprint to go and do that well am i going to do that just for a conference or am i going to make sure that when i go there you know I'm going to be doing some faculty development. I'm going to be meeting with my colleagues. I might go to the conference. I might hope that it happens adjacent to one of my field schools that's running there. And so then, you know, I might have six or seven balls in the air when I'm in Indonesia, but at least I'm being efficient with my time and more productive. And then on top of that, maybe I'll even have a holiday while I'm there too. So I'll knock that, you know go ride my bike in indonesia i've been waiting to do that
0: david i hope you get that chance soon david and shannon i really want to thank you for joining the podcast today and giving me your different views on these really important subjects thank you so much
3: thanks josh it was my pleasure to be here
0: yeah thank you josh it was a pleasure yes thank you so much